Our speaker this morning is Henry Walker. Henry is a retired, prominent criminal attorney here in Shreveport and a longtime member of this church. He graduated from Tulane in 1968 and retired after 40 years of practice of civil rights and criminal law. A frequent speaker on constitutional law issues, he continues to work pro bono for the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Right to Counsel Committee of the Louisiana Bar Association, the Domestic Violence Section of the Louisiana Bar Foundation, the Louisiana Association of Defense Lawyers, and locally for Volunteers for Youth Justice. I first heard Henry's name I can't remember if it was the late 60s or early 70s, but liberal youth were being denied the right to gather in city parks. And I heard Henry's name because he was defending those people against the powers that would keep them from having the same rights everybody else had. We're very glad to have you here this morning. Would you help me welcome Henry Walker. Good morning. What do you think? There's another church in Shreveport that had the Russian choir singing in it? <laughs> Maybe not. I do remember those days, Barbara. Those were, those were the days where the police would get on the bullhorn at Columbia Park and tell the young people, if you come back to this park, you will be harassed. Those were tough defense work. I do want to speak this morning to you. Um, most of the stuff that has to do with the Bill of Rights I am going to try to address on Saturday uh, here at the church. But I wanted to say a few words this morning about freedom of religion. Um, it seems to me that, that the Founding Fathers thought a great deal about that particular aspect since they put it as the first part of the First Amendment to the Constitution. And therefore, it's the first thing mentioned in our Bill of Rights, which, of course, are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. The Bill of Rights represents one of the two legs that our republic stands on. It stands on two legs. One is democracy. And so folks that say we're a democracy, you got it half right. Because democracy is about being able to elect our representatives to go up to Washington or back wherever and do what we want them to do, what the majority of people want them to do. And they are elected by majority rule. And that is the definition of democracy, is majority rule. The problem, of course, is that if you only have democracy, then you have the danger of the dictatorship of the majority, which prevailed in this country astonishingly the Bill of Rights was made into our law in 1791 and was never mentioned again by our Supreme Court for 129 years. Not ever. 
the entire 19th century, not once did the Bill of Rights come up before the U.S. Supreme Court. At the start of the 20th century, racial segregation was legal. Sex discrimination was firmly entrenched. You could be arrested for speaking out in criticism of our government. You could be arrested if you tried to form a labor union. You could be deported if you were a legal alien, if you expressed your political opinion that went against the majority. The police could beat you to pieces to, to evoke a confession, and there was nothing wrong with that. All of these rights that we have built into the Bill of Rights were totally ignored. Now, the, the reason I say that is because the other leg is liberty. That's the counterbalance to democracy. Liberty simply means there are some freedoms that are too precious to leave to the majority. Think right to vote. So it's these two legs that our republic stands on, democracy on the one side and liberty on the other. Now, these are not the same thing, and more than that, it is necessary that they be in conflict all the time. That's how our system works. Compromise is the essence, is the soul of our political system because we have the majority speaking out through the legislature and we don't have enough people speaking out on behalf of liberty because that's the minority protection side and it's scary to speak out. But those two things have to come to the middle. We have to compromise or nothing gets done. You know, in Congress you have that all the time. Without it, our system simply fails. Now, Religious, the, the religious freedom part of the Bill of Rights is fundamental, not only because it was first, but because it is the, it is the foundation of that which is the pride of our nation. The Bill of Rights is something that no, one else, no other country on the planet has. You have other democracies of this and that sort. Nobody has our Bill of Rights. It is our precious heritage, and it is critical to our future as free American citizens. And if we don't protect it, we're going to lose it. And we do tend to fall away, especially when we get scared, we're willing to give up freedoms right and left. Think Patriot Act. And we're willing to not speak up and, and, and in order to, secure more, to be more secure. And if that's the case, if we're willing to give up our precious freedoms for security, we deserve neither. Now, most of the parts of the Bill of Rights, including the religious freedom part, come from uh, what most Englishmen always thought were their natural and inherent rights. The right to religious freedom did not originate in the Bill of Rights. Most of those things were expressed long before the colonists ever even thought about independence. For example, um, in, in 1770, that's when the Boston Massacre occurred. And when John Adams spoke up and said, I'm going to defend these British soldiers who were accused, wrongly as it happens, of having shot down innocent colonists, he was told by everybody, including his wife, you are going to be the most hated man in Boston. And that's when he uttered the famous phrase, 
Counsel is the last thing an accused should lack in a free country. And that was 15 years before the Declaration, I mean before the Bill of Rights was, was brought in. Same thing with religious freedom. When the Declaration in 1775, that's when sort of the fighting broke out. Lexington, Concord, and that sort of stuff, and Massachusetts was under attack. The other 12 colonies did not want to get in and help Massachusetts. Very few. Virginia leaned toward doing it, but they were all scared, as well they should be, of the British Army. That'd be like us in this room taking on the Marine Corps. You've got to be kidding. And it was, and you know, the delegate from New York said, with what navy do you propose we fight them, since we didn't have one? But we were lucky. We got John Adams and some others got up and said, well, look, let's at least elect a leader to lead our continental army that doesn't exist. <laughs> and so they, it didn't. And so they elected George Washington, and he got up, and he's the one that said, if you go after one of our colonies, you go after us all. We're all in this together. And that began to change minds. And so John Adams asked the Second Continental Congress, folks, look, can we maybe at least put together some kind of document that, that would sort of evidence our independence if that's where the vote goes? Because they were very resistant to that. They were terrified of independence. And so they said, not thinking it would happen, yeah, go ahead, whatever. And that's how the Declaration of Independence started. So when Thomas Jefferson, though, brought in the first draft to be reviewed by John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, part of what he had in there was, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal. Benjamin Franklin said, wait a minute, sacred and undeniable smacks of the pulpit. And besides, Mr. Jefferson, aren't these truths self-evident? I suppose they are, said Jefferson. Self-evident, then. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Even in those days, the idea of separating the government, the state, from keeping them, the state, out of our religions was important to them. They had fled over here to avoid being burned at the stake either because you were Catholic or because you were not Catholic or whatever. That kind of religious uh, oppression was what drove most of the folks that landed on the eastern seaboard to that. And it was very, very important to them. And so when they put together the, the First Amendment, for example, uh, people think that the amendments are in order of importance. That's not true, but the First Amendment is the most important because that's the one that addresses the fundamental things. The freedom to petition, to assemble, free press, free speech, and first of all, freedom of religion. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That first part... Congress shall make no law. That is called the Establishment Clause. Now, we have folks in this country who want to pull down that wall of separation that's so vital. They just don't understand that religion is a lot safer if the government can't get in and mess with it. 
much less dictate to you how you should believe or else. We have, for instance, now in India and Pakistan, we have a religious frenzy over there between religions that we haven't seen since the Protestant Catholic Wars of the 15th century. And we ought to be scared because that's mindless stuff. And we ought to be real aware just from that, Taliban, whatever, keep the government out of my religion because it in, we don't want that governmental intrusion telling us what to do. It is lethal to freedom. When they finally put together, uh, it was, what, four years after the revolution ended, we began to put together the um, Constitution. But the Constitution has nothing in it about freedom, or very little, nothing of consequence. It was about how the government was to operate, what the government could do. It did not say what the government could not do. And people were in a big fight. It took four years after the Constitution was drafted before the Bill of Rights came into the Constitution as the first ten amendments, and then it got ratified in 1791. And the problem, of course, was that the, the fight was over whether to have a Bill of Rights or not. These laws, a lot of people thought, there were two camps there, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, as you may remember from your history. The Federalists wanted a strong central government and did want no part of any Bill of Rights. They said, look, these are already our rights. We know this. And we don't want to make a list of them because, first of all, you're going to leave out something and some idiot down the line 200 years from now is going to think that's all there is. Think far-right Christian church. <laughs> On the other hand, the anti-federalists, who were more for states' rights, said, you're not going to get it passed, think compromise, unless you put a Bill of Rights in there. So they did. And it finally got in. Now, when we put together the Constitution, that was really genius because that was the first time in our history, first time in the history of my, our history, the first time in the history of mankind that anyone had, been put, had put together their own government, had invented it from the ground up. First time ever that some despot or conqueror or whatever didn't tell you what, how the government was going to be run. And the genius of all that was to put in the first three articles of the Constitution. The first one is the legislature, Article I. Article II is the executive. Article III is the judiciary. And those were set up to counterbalance what we have called democracy versus liberty. The judicial branch, I mean the legislative branch, that's majority rule. They do what the majority wants because they're elected to do that, and if they don't, they're not going to get elected the next time. And the problem, therefore, is the, the majority rule side doesn't need any protection. They are the power. They have the majority. So they don't need protecting. You have the engine of minority protection over here in the Bill of Rights, but somebody's got to crank it up because the judiciary part, Article Three, that's the folks, the judges, and most judges have not got a clue about this, their job, I mean it, their job is to defend the Bill of Rights. That's why they're in there as Article Three. 
But they can't go out and, and say, you can't do this. You have to bring a case to them. A case or controversy has to come to them, and if you don't bring it to them, they're helpless. So somebody has got to turn the crank of this engine of protection of our liberties, including religious liberty, or it won't happen. That's the problem, because it's often scary, scary to have to do that. But if you don't speak up, if I don't speak up, then we're going to lose half of our liberties simply by not saying anything. And then we have the majority, who, as I pointed out, did nothing for 130 years because people in power don't want these freedoms exercised. It in, gets in the way. The, these petty little freedoms that people talk about, they don't want that if they're in power. I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to give up power. Nobody would. You've got to put it in their face. You have no choice. It's the Bill of Rights. It's part of my heritage. Don't you dare think you can get away with this. Now, the reason that I wanted to go over the religious aspect or the protection of our religious freedoms this morning is because we are facing here in Shreveport right now what I consider a clear and present danger to our freedom period, specifically our religious freedom, and that is the formation of this new Christian law school in town. It is an outrage. The problem is, is that we do need a law school in North Louisiana. There was no law school north of Baton Rouge. That's 250 miles from here, and it would be wonderful to be able to have a law school in Shreveport. These folks are saying they, they come, they're sponsored by the um, uh, Louisiana College. Louisiana College is a fundamental right-wing Baptist outfit across the river from Alexandria down there. And they are controlled entirely by the wing of the Baptist Conference that was that is the most extreme of all. And it is named for Judge Paul Presley. This is the fellow who was one of the architects of the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist Convention. Remember, Baptists used to be strong for, for a separation of church and state. Not so much anymore, huh? Well, moderate Baptists were demonized and thrown out by this fellow, Pressler. Called them godless and went after them. And that church was formed, it was destroyed in terms of having any moderate voice. And that's what this law school has been named after. Now, they're trying to pass it off as being like other religious-based schools that have a law school, Notre Dame, Mississippi College, Baylor. The difference is those schools, which are fine schools, excellent law schools, do not try to inject their religious views, their fundamentalist, for example, homophobic views, into, into the law. These folks, the dean of this law school is going to be Mike Johnson. Now, this is a local lawyer who was a senior counsel with the Alliance Defense Fund. You want to get scared, you Google up Alliance Defense Fund. These are the folks that are determined to break down the wall of separation between church and state, confused by the fact it really doesn't even take a half a brain to figure this out. 
can't, can't make the distinction between the fact that we, as a nation, are majority Christian. Most of us are Christians in this nation. That does not make us a Christian nation. Any more than being uh, uh, against censorship makes me pro-pornography. It makes no sense. But that's what they think. They think that unless we break down that wall so that the, their, their religious views uh, can be encoded uh, into, the, into the law. And these people that graduate from this law school, it's exactly like Liberty Law School, Jerry Falwell's Liberty Law School. It's exactly like Pat Robertson's Regents Law School. These people are dangerous and are enemies of our freedom. Make no mistake. And if we mince words about it or try to pretend, well, oh, you can't hold it against them for being Christians, the hell I can't, because these are not my Christians. These are not people who believe in religious freedom. And if we don't speak up and if we don't speak out, we can't stop them. It's a private concern. It's not a governmental entity or we could stop them. But if we don't speak out about it and if we don't talk about it, and if we let them, this fellow, Mike Johnson, is the same guy that when a public school in Bossier Parish, a public school was sending out in their report cards little flyers for First Baptist Bossier. It's a public school. You can't do that. You can't have church and state like that. Are you crazy? He came to their defense and they fought. My son Clay was on the other side of that. Ask him about Mike Johnson. He's going to be the dean of this law school. If he's the law school dean, I'm a jet pilot. <laughs> anyway, that is a serious, this is a serious issue. We simply cannot sit by and let this happen without at least being aware of it because it's going to make us a cultural backwater. It's going to do to Shreveport what was done to Lynchburg, Virginia. And it is embarrassing, and it is going to be lethal to anybody that believes in freedom. Now, I am one of the getting to be elders in this church or in this community. And we're going to pass into history pretty soon. It's up to you younger members to stand up, to have the courage to speak up and speak out against injustice of any kind, but particularly religious injustice. We cannot allow that to go without opposition. And my request, my demand for you all, you younger folks, is don't let us down. Thank you. Man, that's a, that's a lot to follow. <laughs> when the welcoming committee, congregation committee was talking about our lack of a social justice committee and the fact that there's, we feel a need in the church for the social justice committee to, to happen again, we felt that, that after Henry talked would be the perfect time for a, uh, an altar call of sorts for the social justice committee. And fool that I am, I said, oh, sure, I'll do that. 
I'll stand up in the pulpit after Henry, and I'll be the one to talk. If I had a time machine, boy howdy. But what I was going to say is that um, you use love stories. I've been a member of this church for about five years, and I mean, I guess all people do, but we really love stories, especially telling you ours. I mean, we'll listen to yours too. But we also love to tell the stories of our history, of the history of the church, which is fun to do because as you go throughout history, there are Unitarians and Universalists and Unitarian Universalists who stand up, figuratively and literally, on, on the side of justice, on the side of the principles we believe in, on the side of the inherent worth and dignity of every human being, of justity and equity and compassion and acceptance and all of those things. And those stories are still being told now by Unitarians all over the country, some of them you know, with skateboards, stealing kerosene-soaked Korans off of the grill before somebody can light it on fire. If you haven't seen the story, you should really check out, um, was it San Antonio? Amarillo. Amarillo. Um, and in our community, I suspect that if you, if you peek into most of the good stuff going on in Shreveport, if you check out the boards, if you check out the meeting places of a whole lot of the things in this community that make us proud to be in Shreveport, you'll find a member of this church somewhere in there. Acting as, as an individual, right? Serving on boards of all sorts of things over the city that do amazing stuff, that, um, that speak out and act up to make Shreveport a better place. And so why do we need a social justice committee? And this is actually, my husband loves to play devil's advocate. And this morning as I was, as I was talking about this thing that I was going to say in church today, he said, well, why then? I was, I was talking about the great things that, that individuals in our church are doing, and he said, then why do we need this committee? If the people in this church are already doing these good things, then what's the need for a committee? And I paused, because he makes me think. Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that we're stronger in numbers. I mean, the things that, that, that Henry's asking us to do are scary. To, uh, what do you say, have the courage to stand up and speak out? I mean, that's a scary thing to do when you're pretty sure that people are going to agree with you. It's really scary when you're pretty sure people aren't going to agree with you. And so I think it's a whole lot easier to stand up and to speak out when you've got some numbers, right? When we're doing this as a congregation, as a community, as opposed to as individuals. And the other thing that I think is really powerful is that we are not just a group of individuals. We are not just the board of a philanthropic organization. We're a church. And for a church in Shreveport to make a stance on the side of, frankly, the things the church is supposed to believe in. If you go back and look at the New Testament, the New Testament is about taking care of people, right? It's about social justice. It's all in there. And so having a church stand up and say, this is what we're all supposed to be doing, right? If you're, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, then these are, these are things that we all ought to be doing. So I think it's powerful for us to act as a group in numbers, and I think it's powerful for a church to take, to take important stances. And so, if you agree, there will be a sign-up sheet. I had a nice printed thing that wasn't all sort of pink and fluffy, but I left it on my board, so on, on, on the computer. So this will be in the foyer afterwards. If the Social Justice Committee is something you'd like to be a part of, if you're one of those people who's already doing amazing things and you want to help galvanize this congregation to do things, if you're not doing anything because you don't know where to start, this would be a good group to join. Um, I want our kids to tell our stories, right? Not just the stories of the people from the 60s, but to tell our stories too. And so I, uh, you know, Jefferson said it. It's in our lives and not in our words that our religion must be judged. And um, I, think there's, I think there's a call to action here for us to do some good stuff. So thank you. Thank you.